0: Hello, welcome to this episode of INS Infusion Room. Today, I have with me in the studio, Dan Degnan. Dan, welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate it.
0: Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to introduce yourself. Tell about who you are and the work that you do. Okay.
1: Uh, Dan Degnan. I am a pharmacist by training. I work at the Purdue University College of Pharmacy. Uh, I spend half of my time working on... Uh, infusion pumps and a data set that we have at Purdue that has uh, data from smart infusion pumps. And then the other half of my time, I spend teaching pharmacy students, uh, third-year pharmacy students uh, in a professional skills lab. And then I also have a patient safety and informatics class. But usually when I tell people that I work at Purdue, one of the things Mm -hmm. I try and tell them is what I did before that. um, Mm
0: -hmm. Because I haven't
1: always worked at the college. Uh, was a medication safety officer at a health system in in Indianapolis for 15 years before that uh, and absolutely loved it. So that's Mm -hmm. how I kind of migrated towards Mm -hmm. the infusion devices.
0: Right. You know, I have always been fascinated by the study of errors and error causation. And I've read every single thing that I can get my hands on that talks about the human factors, implications on why errors occur. And sometimes it's a device situation and sometimes it's a human situation. And most often it's a combination of the two and the environment as well. So, Dan, as a safety officer, I know we're going to start talking about smart pumps, mm-hmm. you know, smart infusion technology. But before we go there, tell us about your role as a safety officer. You have had to have seen so many things in your career that we've changed Yeah, in the Uh, Duration of your work. Tell us about some things that are different now than they were then. I think
1: probably the primary difference is there's heightened awareness for sure. And there have been enough, and I, you know, you say this and then another one will happen, but there have been enough (laughs) landmark cases where. People, I think, have jumped to the conclusion of punishing the person
0: mm-hmm.
1: rather than looking at the system and the technology around the person.
0: Right
1: uh, to say, okay, we need to look at these other kinds of things rather than right. just the person that was at the moment and uh, at the end of the system that committed the error. And you know, one of the things that I loved about the work that I did with safety in the hospital was kind of the behavioral mentality to try and figure out those behaviors and the culture that lent themselves to errors that may have happened with technology or errors that may have happened with the systems. And I absolutely love that. I and, mean, you know, the fun thing is once you get, and I think this is kind of where you're going, but right. once you get tuned into that, you can use it outside of work too. You right, know. right.
0: Um, absolutely. There's a, there, are, there is a way of looking at things a little bit differently. I had some human factors engineer students come in and assess our clinical environment once they were looking at the infusion pumps and how they're set up at the patient's bedside. And so they did some walkthroughs. They had permission to do the study that they were doing and work with me on that. And they were reading the directions for use manual of the infusion pump. And then they also then then they would go see how things worked at bedside. And one of them came out and said, so that bag is supposed to hang so many inches above the pump. And the other bag has to say, hang so many inches below that first bag. And they said, how come the IV pump pole doesn't have a that measuring tool it, on yeah. it? <laughs> you, know, wh- you know, wouldn't that be so easy? Because a nurse is held responsible or held accountable to, you know, how that pump is set up, and yet we have no guidance right at hand. And he, he just thought that was the simplest thing, just like having a, speedometer on the car if we're supposed to drive 55 <laughs> <laughs> um, wouldn't it be nice to know when, when your car reaches that speed so another thing that you just talked about um, about errors um, I like to think about just culture and I, I remember sometimes when we would hear that something had happened often the first question out of someone's mouth was who did that and I know we've moved now to a question of how did that happen how, how could that happen? Because we want to know what brought that situation about because we believe, we truly believe that every clinician is there to do a good job, to do good work with no intention for harm. Yeah.
1: It, you really, I think um, part of it is training your brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that comes down to the the culture piece to say, you know, why and how, as opposed to who. And uh, you know, for me, that also comes down to, you know, everyday life. So as many mm-hmm. situations as you can uh, train to say, uh, how did this happen rather mm-hmm. than the who question. And for me, you know, I get, I love working with students uh, because they are they're new to the environment. And I usually will, you know, we'll get some error that happens or uh, when i was in the health system you know the very first question that they would want to ask is who or they would do i call it the the gasp factor mm-hmm. you know they they would be like oh, i can't believe that happened i go okay it happened we need to start talking about how to prevent it from happening again rather than than who was involved and in just to try and control that gasp factor
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah If one person can do it, any person can do it. And that leads us right into our discussion about smart infusion pump technology. Several years ago, it's been many now, we had infusion pumps that we uh, hung a bag, we put some numbers in, (laughs) pressed the button, and walked away. And we always hoped it was the right thing. And we discovered very soon, often wasn't the right thing. But there was no way of knowing until injury occurred that an era had happened. And so um, smart pep technology was developed and it has continued to develop over the course of 20 years or more because we know humans fail and we also know that devices fail. So, so much work has gone into making a safe environment for patients to receive therapy and for clinicians to provide that therapy. So let's talk about the first piece that's most important about smart infusion pump technology. Dan, what do you think that is?
1: So I think you know one of the really interesting pieces, The one of the systems that we work with has millions and millions of infusions in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that we can go in and tell is how many times a clinician was going to administer something and they ran up against a stop mm-hmm. uh, in the system that said, You can't do this. Mm -hmm. And then they have to go in and reprogram it a little different. And a lot of the pump manufacturers and the data, I know we're getting into it, but Mm -hmm. uh, can figure out when that happens and they call it a good catch.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And when you were talking, one of the things that it made me think of was how many times has that happened over the last 20 years where we've had a good catch and how many people were unaffected by that? Um, so one of the things that I was always challenged with as a person involved with safety in the hospital was, you know, frequently we would get measured. You know, people always wanted to know what you're doing to, to make things better so that people don't get hurt. Mm-hmm. And it was always challenging. I think you you start to take for granted, you know, the number of times that a good catch happens or some, mm-hmm. you do something and nothing happens. How many times are you actually judged on how many times something doesn't happen. And that, that is yeah. really hard. Right. Um, but you turn all those good catches into you know a family with a hurt loved one mm-hmm. or someone that's actually walking out of the hospital that maybe wouldn't have walked out of the hospital before. Right. And yeah. you know it's pretty meaningful. One of the, I you know we just got done doing the presentation, but one mm-hmm. of the slides that I presented had over 800,000 times where a high alert medication had a hard stop on it. Mm -hmm. Not that it was a good catch, but somebody was going to infuse a medication that potentially could have hurt someone. Right, Um, right. And so, you know, I love the safety aspect, but I usually have to translate it into meaning by saying, uh, we prevented a lot of people getting
0: hurt. Right, right, absolutely.
1: So, yes, about my favorite, it's the hard stop. The hard the stop. Reprogram. That's a good catch.
0: <laughs> so, what, what enables a hard stop is that drug library. And the drug library in most organizations is uh, built on the formulary of medications that are available within that organization. And then they're categorized often by the level of care or the care areas that um, they provide separate distinct care areas for patients who need separate distinct care. So, for instance, ICU, we have a surgical suite uh, category, maybe for anesthesia, we have oncology, we have med-surg, pediatrics, neonatal. So, that library is divided to the patient population, and then the formulary is entered in, and then a group sits around the table, And pharmacy, nursing, and so many others are involved in deciding what are your high-limit alerts and your low-limit alerts. So what you described was a high-limit alert, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Where someone is programming a high-alert drug, and it doesn't even have to be a high-alert drug. It can be an antibiotic. But if it's misprogrammed, the pump is going to stop that from happening. And then there's this other category. So if, I'm, if I have my hands making two parentheses, now I'm going to move them closer together and say there's these high-limit alerts and low-limit alerts. And on the low-limit alerts, the pump won't let you run it too slow, and it also won't let you run it too fast, but there's a little bit of wiggle room in between those two sets of parentheses, and that's where your soft-limit alerts happen. And those soft-limit alerts, let the clinician make a decision. They say, you've programmed 345 mLs per hour. And the pump will ask a question, did you mean to do that, or should we proceed? And the clinician answers yes or no. And that's the piece I want to talk to you next about, because the pump tells us how quickly the clinician makes that decision. So, boom, that pops up. 365 ml per hour. Did you mean to do that? Do you want to proceed? And the clinician presses yes. What has just happened, and what is the pump going to tell us later?
1: Right. It, that's so interesting because, um, you know, we talked a, a little bit about the human behavior component mm-hmm. of what is happening there. Mm-hmm. And a clinician will end up having muscle memory. Uh, of that action of going through. And if they get too many alerts that they go through and they Mm -hmm. confirm uh, very quickly without necessarily reading them, uh, you can have situations where someone may confirm something where they didn't mean to confirm it. right? Um, And those actions can happen, you know, within one to three seconds. Right. uh, At least from what the pump tells us. I I had a colleague that did a really, there's all kinds of alerts that happen Mm -hmm. in the... Mm -hmm health system with the computers, but, you know, one of them that happens is with drug-drug interactions as well, right. outside of the pumps. And he went and did a, a quick study to look at how quickly people responded to those. You know, clinicians are challenged today with how much help they have and, you know, how many people they how many FTEs are allocated. Mm-hmm. And he turned that one to three seconds where somebody was always saying yes to an individual alert into uh, an FTE and was able to show that a significant amount of, in this case, nursing time, Mm -hmm. was being wasted by having to say yes. You know, some soft alerts, the soft alerts that I don't like, that we look at are ones, we may have a million alerts or 100,000 alerts and everyone has said yes to it. So if everyone says yes... And I would argue that it's probably not an effective alert.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yep. Um, one of the one of the other interesting pieces to that is, uh, and where I thought you were going to go with your question mm-hmm. um, was this idea of having subtherapeutic alerts. Uh, yes, than, yes.
0: So we can go there. Let's okay. talk about that.
1: I mean, because you know, for the excessive supertherapeutic alerts, those are usually easy to tell because. Uh, someone will have uh, an overt reaction to the drug. You know, if you run it too fast, someone usually someone's right, going right. to have a problem. However, if you run it too slow, if you have a sub-therapeutic alert, mm-hmm. somebody mm-hmm. mistypes it or runs it too slow, that can also have an effect. And it's always been interesting. I think it's been an interesting thing to me is it's harder to catch those. Mm-hmm. It's harder to catch the sub-therapeutic ones. Right, um, right. Rather than the super therapeutic ones, but right. and you know the other funny thing that I liken it to is you know you be you'll be working on your computer mm-hmm. and you'll get if you try and shut something down without saving it,
0: right.
1: it'll say hey do you want to save this? And I would love to do a study sometime to look at how much time someone spends responding to that alert mm-hmm. versus because that's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it
0: does if it's your term paper, but <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: Um, but how much time somebody spends on that alert mm-hmm. versus an alert that, you know, might come up on an IV pump that says, hey, are you sure you want to do
0: this? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think it'd be interesting to do that. Yeah,
0: it is. So let's talk a little bit about that subtherapeutic dose alert. There are clinicians that like to run things like vancomycin extra slow. So they really aren't getting it in in the expected time frame that, we're, that we would like to see that happen. And clinicians have reasons why they want to run that slow because they have someone with fragile veins. We have peripheral access and we want that Van Gogh to go slow. We don't want Redmond syndrome. We want, yeah. we, we're going to do all kinds of things. We're going to dilute it further. We're, and I don't want to say that that clinical judgment isn't important but whenever the pump is telling you, you know, hey, think just think about this for a second. Do you really want to proceed? What the pump is trying to say is that a lot of scholarly people have sat around the table and have programmed this pump so that it runs just exactly the way you need it. And if you're choosing to go outside of those limits, you're kind of on your own. You're you're. um negating some of the the, uh, safety that comes with smart pump technology. So I always want people to know you have the freedom to do that, yes. Why are you doing it? And do you have a really good reason for exceeding or or under-exceeding the dose?
1: I love that. Many of the guidelines will talk about how there can be a disconnect between the pharmacist that may be setting up the pump parameters Mm -hmm. and the nurse that's actually using the pump. And trying to figure out ways to make them come together Mm -hmm. or have them come together Mm -hmm. to discuss that. There are times when uh, someone may be in front of a patient and have something pop up. And not that this matters, but I'm a big why person. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to know why things are set up that way. And, you know, if someone is in a situation where they feel like they have to ask, well, why is that? Then we probably have it done, we, the collective We. Mm-hmm. I've not done a good job of going through and explaining why or this is the concern. And sometimes the person that is choosing to do that may have a good reason. The theory would say that that's called a a positive deviant. Mm-hmm. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, if they do have a good reason, then for me, tell me that information so we can make the change so it right. makes it better for everybody
0: right. So when you have a, a smart infusion pump, you have a drug library that's actually a living being, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. It's it's a living product. It's not like you've bought a hardcover textbook and it's always going to stay the same every time you open it. Every time you use it, the words are going to be exactly the same all of the time. What you've just bought is the document that is electronic and it's subject to change all of the time. And That's the good piece. We do want those libraries updated. Not every day, certainly. It takes way too long to download that data to every pump in the organization. But we do want a library that is active, that is responsive. When those who review the infusion pump data and notice so many soft limit alerts for one particular drug within a dosage range, they realize, oh, we need to fix that for those clinicians so that it's not... They don't have to make that choice every single time they program it. So it's important to have a team that's ready to go and that is watching the data that the pump gives us and at least on a quarterly basis adjust those annoyances (laughs) um, that let us trust the pump more. Because that's what this really is about. If the pump keeps beeping and we have to keep doing these nuisance adjustments at, at the bedside, we, we begin not to trust the device. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be the the one time that you needed it. Mm-hmm. It will be the one time where you have that muscle memory of clicking through the, right. the alert right. and, and that's not okay. You know, the um when you were talking, the the other thing that it made me think of was the interdisciplinary nature of what should be happening. Uh, and ISMP, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, just came out with a, there's some Smart Pump invitation Guidelines, uh, 2020, February. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the really strong recommendations in there is to have an interdisciplinary group right. uh, managing your library. And, you know, I think that we both have uh, come from organizations that, you know, where that was a priority. right? Um, right. But that's not a priority everywhere, I don't think.
0: Right. And, and I know that. I know that in my previous position, our organization paid to have a person like me on site to watch over that, and to have a pharmacist, a dedicated pharmacist, and then numbers of other people. We had biomedical engineering, so many people on that force. So the ISMP 2020 guidelines, they talk so much about having that group, that interdisciplinary group that keeps that product running throughout your hospital, so that it is a safety feature, a safety device that's used as well as it could be. It makes things better for patients, makes things better for clinicians. But the ISMP guideline also talked about the responsibility of the organization um, at the higher level, having everyone on board and having um, systems in place that make this work.
1: Yeah. So they have it into five categories. Mm -hmm. And one of the ones that was very interesting to me was I think the one that you're really mentioning Mm -hmm. had to do with infrastructure around the pumps. And, uh, you know, there are some really key ones... One that I love in there is uh, the one about culture and having an appropriate culture.
0: Yes, yes. A culture that is concerned and is going to be devoted to. You know, you mentioned something in one of your talks that I've listened to is that you have just spent so much money on this safety device, brought it into your organization, and it is the cream of the crop. And we never tap into the use, the full use of what that device can do. For our clinicians and for our patients, and how did you? What did I, you? Does, how did you describe so that? So
1: it was. So I want to make sure I give appropriate credit. It was <laughs> what uh, uh, is when uh, I was faced with uh, trying to purchase a new aspect or a new feature on one of the pumps, and I was having a conversation for the administ- with the administrator, and he was going to have to write a big check, uh, which my organization at the time was very open to doing. Mm-hmm. However, he did say to me, uh, and I won't ever forget this. He goes. He goes, Dan, you know, we, we have purchased a Maserati mm-hmm. for you in these smart pumps, but you are driving it like a Volkswagen. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that resonated to say, hey, you know, yes, we probably don't have the latest and greatest, and we're going to work on that. Mm-hmm. But you can do a lot with what you have, and it's not happening right now. And I think, for me, one of the things that happens, you constantly – I think can look at the technology as being the problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is uh, money and energy. But, you know, using it and putting the appropriate pieces in place around the technology and using the data. You know, I shared the study Mm -hmm. today from 2017 in HHP that said that only 50%, a little over 50% of hospitals are actually using the data that they garner off the pumps to improve the practice. And, you know, to me, that is, that is what the administrator was saying. You know, you, you've got a Maserati that has a lot of potential, mm-hmm. but you're, you're driving mm-hmm. it like a Volkswagen. That is nothing against Volkswagens. My son drives a Volkswagen, <laughs> but but that's how he... I, I thought it was It's something that's going to stick with Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a story that I could tell is early on in my experience with the Smart Infusion Pumps, We we were learning how to effectively pull our data, and analyze it. And so my pharmacy partner and I, we went to a training session in another state. We got there, and the pump vendor was had this big program set up for us. We had our laptops there, and we were supposed to download the last quarter of data from our infusion pumps. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone knows this, but Excel programs can hold a lot of data. Well, ours truncated after, (laughs) meaning like we couldn't get all of the data, meaning key press data from our pumps on one full Excel sheet. So it, it just stopped after a while, but we had so much to go through. And at that time, we had columns and columns and columns of data pieces that we had to learn how to sort and filter, and then we could generate some tables. And it was a lot. And I can remember my my pharmacy partner Cindy and I, we looked at each other <laughs> and our computer was just sitting there spinning and spinning, <laughs> and spinning and spinning, loading this data. And boy, has that ever come a long ways yeah. now. The yeah. ability to look at the data. We can see almost every key press clinician's. <laughs> so every decision that is made, it's it's recorded and that pump knows where it was living when it happened. Oftentimes, it knows the exact patient, the the MR number, and the clinician that's programming it, it. They are so smart, and they're they're feeding that data back through because when we analyze it, we can see if that pump is working the way we intended to, and we're certainly looking at return on investment or ROI, but more than that, what we're really looking at is have we helped the patients at the bedside. Yeah.
1: You know, one really interesting thing that you mentioned is and that I hear from people, and actually, uh, in the ISMP survey that they did in 2017 18, uh, one of the things that they said back to or uh, that rep- they reported out was that they were, had 126 respondents, but they had over 100 comments. And the comments talking about analytics said that we are either drowning in data and don't know how to use it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: or we don't have enough enough data, useful data, to sit there and take any action. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you you had this paralysis that happened on both ends. Right,
0: right.
1: And I love the fact that for me, you know, a lot of times when I was in the hospital, I would always want to just pick, let's start someplace. Mm -hmm. You know, the Mm -hmm. old Arthur Ashe, you know, use what you have, start where you are, and do what you can. And, you know, go through and pick one thing and that's what we're going to start working on. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it helps. I don't know what you think, but I think it can help you kind of get through that that paralysis. Well, while
0: you're looking at that one thing, you're also learning about yes. what else can be done. So if we just pick one medication and say, how are we doing on that? And take take a, a high alert medication. I'd
1: for propofol.
0: Propofol, absolutely. So how are we doing on that? <laughs> um <laughs> What kind of alerts are we seeing? Um, what kind of programming do we see? Do we see clinicians using the drug library or do we see clinicians using a basic type infusion where they're going to tell the pump what to do and the pump will do exactly what what we program in? That's the danger zone. So we need to know that. And then we need to know what is it that you need to make this better for you? So that's what, what we're talking about. Every organization needs to have a team that is working to make this better for you and for the patients so picking one drug even is yep. is a good place to start
1: yep agree and i'm I, mean, I was kind of kidding about propofol but i i do believe propofol is a good
0: insulin is another one insulin insulin yeah. in a in an acute care facility um, so much insulin is is administered and people have different thoughts about how that's going to go, <laughs> you know, how yeah. we're going to set it up and how we're going to run it. What is a hard limit alert that we should have in the general care areas? And what's a, a different hard limit alert that works for most uh, acute care areas? So that so, one for sure.
1: So the good thing is we just gave people two drugs that they could work on right away. Right away. profile.
0: If you start working with that, what's, what's going to happen is you're going to see how the drug library works. You're going to see what clinicians have to say about that, what are their needs. And sometimes, you know, we also have to work with our physician partners to decide, you know, and I know we do, we standardize the order sets and we think we've got that ironed down pretty tight. Not always, not always. There's some flexibility in there too. And when they use their flexibility, sometimes it doesn't work in the pump. Uh, so we get numbers that, that come up <laughs> in an order set that, that doesn't quite fit the programming from the pump. And so you have no choice but to give it in basic infusion. So back to the ISMP. So I, I really want us to know, what what I want us to hear is that we have some resources out there that give guidance about the use of smart pump technology. So ISMP definitely is a nice place to start. But we also need to rely on the vendors, the pump uh, manufacturer and the, the, the folks that have created your pump and the design. You need to partner with that group as well because they are interested in having your device be successful in your organization. And while every device has some problems and there are recalls with most technologies, um, that doesn't mean it's a bad device. It means that they're right on top of creating the changes that need to happen to make it safer. So partnering with organizations outside your own, looking at what ISMP has to say, looking at your vendor, and then getting the people around the table in your own organization. And it, you, we have to have end users at the table, right? Yep,
1: absolutely. I think one that I would add to those four, because mm-hmm. uh, I 100% agree with the four that you mentioned, there is a, a growing body of literature that has looked at uh, smart pump use within facilities um, not only from an implementation standpoint, but it's starting to get uh, more sophisticated in looking at uh, end users with specific medications. One of the really interesting studies that has come out and you know the one of the really interesting things to me is where these um, the literature ends up, so sometimes mm-hmm. it'll be in the Journal of Infusion Nursing mm-hmm. or sometimes it'll be in the pharmacy literature or sometimes it'll be in the nursing literature. Sometimes it's in patient Sometimes safety. it's in
0: anesthesia yeah, too. absolutely. Interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. and so um, it's not straightforward to go and find it, but it can be really, I think, illuminating when you do find it because someone has taken a degree of rigor to say, okay, this is how I want to look at this problem,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, I haven't always been at Purdue, and I think I, the thing, one of the things I've learned is that the people that do these, this type of research are really, really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really good at that piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, the four that you name for sure, uh, yeah, the vendors know. for sure too, uh, as part of that. But also, I think there's an emerging body of literature that can help people.
0: Exactly, and that we rely on that because we do need to, to have research that comes from the bedside. We need those really smart people that are putting it forward, and we need to know what's next. So one thing we haven't talked about, and that's um, something that has emerged over the past, oh, I'll say 10 years, is bidirectional interoperability with the infusion pump and the electronic medical record. You know, I know that many large organizations have adopted that technology, but many haven't. So, I don't know if we could say maybe 20% of the larger organizations are there. And that, for those of you who don't know, it means that you have a barcode scanner, you scan your your clinician badge, you scan the medication, you scan the patient's ID pump, and it brings all of those pieces together. And... Um, it actually programs your pump for you and then you validate or verify that programming. Um, So it's very sophisticated and whatever the pump is infusing is now going directly to your electronic medication record and it does some documentation for you that you also have to validate extremely sophisticated technology. Um, So we do see a lot of uh, organizations that have moved in that direction are experiencing that. Is it perfect?
1: So, no. <laughs> no,
0: no. <laughs> That's no. an
1: easy one. That's the easiest question yeah. you asked me. Tit- titration
0: is still a little challenge. Yeah, the PCA absolutely. is a challenge.
1: I think one of the other interesting things is it has introduced, it has brought to the table another partner to talk to mm-hmm. uh, in the EMR vendors. Mm-hmm. And so the Epics and the Cerners of the world mm-hmm. are also at the table now.
0: Does McKesson have a product uh, as well?
1: Think so, but okay. honestly, I don't, I don't. I'm not sure.
0: Okay, so we can stay safely with Epic for sure. Yeah, Epic concern, I know for sure. Yep,
1: um, you know, and for me, you know that that discussion that we had about drowning in data. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a whole nother data source that comes to the table and says, "Hey, I've got some things that can help you." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, with those systems that are fully operational with the uh, interop. They, it's great because they know more about what's happening in their health system with IV infusions than Mm -hmm. probably anybody ever in the history of history. Right. The challenge is they've got one more data source to try and figure out how to use that to improve the system. And to me, that's a good problem to have, but it can be also really daunting if you've got one more data
0: source. Absolutely. Can you imagine being a pharmacist on a busy unit and pulling up a web page that shows all of the infusions that are running and you can see how many of them are going to empty.
1: Pretty <laughs> sure you can do that. Very right now. soon, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and do your refills that way. It sounds like Jetsons land right yeah. there. We're in Jetsons. And I guess the Jetsons were in space, so I can't even use the word land. But um, it is fascinating. And I think, you know, when I said there was an ultra-sophisticated technology, what we do have to realize as clinicians is that infusion pump that you have at bedside is really a computer. Uh, Dan, I've heard you say it's like having a laptop strapped to an IV pole. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. And then it's got a channel for you to be <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. And um, it's one of the more unique healthcare devices that is of that quality. It has to be cleanable with all of the healthcare cleansers and products that we have out there. It um, has to be durable. They get They get knocked around a lot. They have to be cleaned and moved from patient to patient and then they have to work perfectly when we do use them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one other piece to throw into that, you know, that makes it already heavily regulated and observed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, But the one other piece that I think is unique to the infusion pump is the interdisciplinary nature. So, you have mm-hmm. doctor or prescriber writing order for what's going to go into the infusion pump. You've got the pharmacy folks dispensing mm-hmm. what's going to go and maybe setting the uh, limits. Then you've got nurse that's got to worry about the monitoring and and also administering that to the patient. So mm-hmm. you know just the... And there's uh, one more. Oh.
0: There's there's uh, central services that oh, yeah. clean the pump Absolutely. and there's and biomedical, biomedical here, that yeah. <laughs> that that does all of the. Um, Updates and management of the device itself. And if we break the door off, yep, they've got to fix that too. And there are so many people involved with that device in the organization.
1: Highly complex. Highly,
0: highly complex. But the good thing is we do have the good catches. We do have the mistakes, the errors that never happened. We have the patients that are out there in the community that never experienced the error that could have happened if the pump hadn't caught it.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and that I, honestly, that is for me that is one of the most rewarding pieces of this work.
0: Exactly, Dan, I'm going to ask you for your closing thoughts.
1: Uh, so I I mentioned it earlier. I I just uh, absolutely wanted to thank you uh, first of all uh, for being able to be here. Uh, I have enjoyed this is the second time that I've presented at the uh, infusion mm-hmm. uh, meeting, and it's been rewarding to me each time. I think uh, the other piece. Uh, that I haven't shared is you know my uh, my parents are getting into an age where they have to have people uh, really helping them Mm -hmm. and I absolutely uh, am blown away by some of the caring that is outpoured from the nurses that are taking care of my mom and Mm -hmm. dad so those are probably the best closing thoughts nothing technical but really uh, just personal and and making sure that you uh, know the gratitude that I have for being able to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.